0: Listen, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and open with me to the book of Acts. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4 today. Uh, We've been walking straight through the book of Acts for the past several weeks in a series that we're calling You Are Sent. Okay, that's what we've been talking about is what does it look like to live a life that is sent. We believe that the book of Acts sets itself perfectly for that conversation. Um, One of the things I love about the book of Acts that you guys have already learned is that this is the birth of the early church as you and I actually know it. The church, as we have said, uh, what, three or four or five weeks ago, it's not about being a brick built of, you know, a building of brick and mortar. Instead, it's a people, a baptized people who are on mission together. That's what the church was intended to be. That's the church as you and I should know it. In fact, the way that we defined the word church is like this, that the church is a movement of God. And the reason we said it's a movement of God is because when we walk through the book of Acts, what you're going to see is that over and over and over again, God is on the move. When his people do things his way, Great things begin to happen. And one of the challenges that we face as a congregation is allowing ourselves to do things the way that God wants them done. And when that happens, I believe that what God has done, God will do again. And that's the title of our sermon today is what God has done, yes, God will do even again. Again, so we're going to be in Acts chapter four this morning, but this is the statement that I want to make, and I I kind of want to paint it like this. What you're going to see in the book of Acts is that there's a pattern that begins to develop, and as this pattern begins to develop, what you'll see is that same pattern kind of holds true even to today, and that pattern is this. When the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, that leads to a movement of God. Hear that? When the people of God, that's you and I, those of us who have placed our faith and our trust in the finished work of Jesus Christ, when the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, it leads to a movement of God. Think about it this way. In Acts chapter 2, what we saw was that the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost. Now you remember Luke wrote the book of Acts. This is a sequel to the gospel of Luke. And in Luke chapter 24, Jesus told us before he ascended to the right hand of the Father that there was going to come another comforter that was even better than than he is. And that this comforter was going to come and he was going to dwell within us, not walk beside us like Jesus did. He was going to come and live and dwell within us and we would be able to do great and mighty works because of him. The Holy Spirit is who Jesus was talking about there, and he comes in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 2, we see the Spirit come at the day of Pentecost, and when the Spirit comes, the Bible tells us that he's accompanied by strong winds, okay? These strong winds we equated to modern day like tornadoes. We don't know that factually, but we know that the wind was so strong that it was making an audible sound. But not only did the Spirit come with strong winds, but the Bible tells us in Acts 2 that there was literally like a, a flame of fire that rested above the 120 followers of of Christ who were in the upper room that day okay so these are like great effects that are happening here in the book of Acts and when this happens the Bible tells us that Peter he steps out and he preaches a sermon and when he preaches this sermon the Bible then tells us that 3,000 people place their faith and their trust in Jesus you see what just happened when the people of God are filled with the spirit of God It leads to a movement of God. And then we go to Acts chapter 3. Peter and John, they go to the temple for prayer. We talked about this last week. And when they come to the temple to pray, they run across in the temple square a guy who was lame, the Bible says, from birth. And I told you, and I want to make sure you heard me clearly, that just because this guy was lame, you can't equate him to your husband. Okay? Don't don't make the mistake of doing that. This guy was immobile since the day that he was born. And the Bible tells us that Peter and John, they come to the temple and they heal this guy. They do this marvelous, like miraculous work, and this guy now is able to walk. And the religious leaders, they did not like what just occurred. So what did they do? They threw Peter and John in jail for a night. That's what they did. They did not like what he was doing. So what does God do as a result of that? Well, he starts a movement, and the Bible tells us there in Acts chapter 3 that 5,000 men, that doesn't include women, and it doesn't include children. It just says 5,000 men followed Jesus that day. Again, when the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, it leads to a movement of God. But here's what I need you to see this morning. When the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God, and it leads to a movement of God, You can expect opposition. You hear that? You can expect opposition. There will always be opposition to the movements. And many of you, you know exactly what this is like. You started walking with God, and the moment you started walking with God, some unnecessary trials started breaking out in your life. God begins a movement in your heart, he begins a movement in your family, and all of a sudden, trials that you did not anticipate, but you should have expected, start to come at you. Maybe your life group, your life group begins to grow together really strongly and firmly, solidly, solidly. spiritually, um, relationally, you start to grow together, and then what happens? Some unnecessary opposition starts to break out in the group. Sometimes this opposition is internal. And sometimes this opposition is external. I'll never forget the day that God called us to plant a church in in Wake Forest, North Carolina. And in the first three years, we were able to see a little over 100 people come to faith and trust in Jesus and get baptized. And God was moving in a mighty, mighty way. And you know that one of the things that caused us for months to just get stuck and hung up on what God was doing, like God's moving, people are getting saved, people are getting baptized, and all of a sudden, for about four months, I felt like our wills were just turning and nothing was happening. And we were so focused on trivial things that the mission of God kind of took the back seat. And let me tell you what trivial thing happened that caused us for four months to get distracted from what God had called us there to do. We had a specific family that were in our church, and this is not me venting, by the way. This is me helping you see how opposition breaks out internally in the life of the church. We had a family in the church. They were a little upset that our pastors in the church were working in coffee shops instead of renting an office space and working there. So even just in my, in my mind, I mean, this is like... Not only is this person upset about it, but she shares it with her husband, he's upset about it, and now they're sharing it with other people, and they're kind of getting, you know, asking questions, they're planting seeds of the vision, if you will, and this makes its way back to us, and we have to spend four months putting this fire out, and I'll never forget sitting there in the privacy of my own time, just just praying this through, how am I going to talk to these people, what am I going to say, and the Lord just kind of laid the logistics of this out on paper for me. He said, think about the cup of coffee that you guys are buying. That's 350. You go there four times a week. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. You don't have an office. So that's where you work. You work in a coffee shop. 350 times 4, okay? That's $14. 14 times 52, 52 weeks of the year. That's assuming we go every single day, every single week, right? That's a little under what? I don't know. I can't do math. What is that? It's under $2,000, right? Under $2,000, okay? That's just one person. It's not even that, $700. Who who gave me that number? Somebody just said it. It's like 750 bucks, okay? 750 times three is about $2,000. Do you know that it costs for three offices anywhere in Wake Forest, North Carolina, $2,000 a month? That doesn't include utilities. That doesn't include internet. That doesn't include any of it. So here we are being extremely frugal and making good choices. And not only, not only that, but we're, we're in the community. Every single day, people walk into the coffee shop and they see us, they stop, they talk to us, and we're rubbing shoulders with people, we're praying over people, we're developing relationships with people we don't know. And so much good is happening. But the church got stuck because they were worried about how we were spending money, $3.50 at the coffee shop. And the alternative to that would absolutely break us. It's 24,000 plus dollars a year when we're only spending 2,000 or less a year. And that's an internal opposition that was unnecessary to the movement of God. And if we're not careful, the same things will happen here. The same thing will happen at any church that's doing something for the glory of God. So there's these internal oppositions that that break out in the life of the church. The, The church gets laser focused on the mission of God. And suddenly some internal or external tensions begin to flare up. And what we learned is that when the people of God are filled with the Spirit of God and the movement of God begins, you and I as a church family, you and I as life group leaders, you and I as followers of Jesus, we can expect that there will be some sort of internal and or external opposition. Think about it. Last week, Peter and John, they did this miracle of healing a guy who couldn't walk. The Bible says, as I said a moment ago, that this guy was lame from birth. And then after they do this miracle, Peter stands up and he preaches another sermon. And in the audience was a few skeptical people who were curious about how this man was healed. They wanted to get to the bottom of what was happening. So Peter explained he was healed because of the wonderful and the powerful name of Jesus. It was Jesus Christ of Nazareth that Peter gives credit to for the healing of this man. And here it is, church. This is when opposition begins to come. The message that Peter is preaching is not a popular message to to these religious leaders. The message that Peter is preaching, it's not um, a well-received message to these religious leaders. In fact, it ticked some of them off. These religious leaders were in disarray. They didn't want Peter and John preaching Jesus. But you know what I find so interesting about what the religious leaders are doing here? They did not care that the guy was healed. In fact, they were all for the miracle and they were all for the healing. What they had a problem with is that Peter and John were claiming that Jesus is the only way for salvation. So what the religious leaders do is they throw Peter and John into prison for a night. Why? Because Peter and John were preaching the exclusivity of the gospel that Jesus is indeed the only way for salvation. And these people in their culture, the religious leaders namely, looked at Peter and John and thought, well that's very intolerant of you to think that only Jesus can save and that, only, that o- the man's only hope, that woman's only hope to go to heaven is through the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's called exclusivity, it's called intolerant to them. This delegitimized all the other religions in the world. The fact that Jesus is the only way for salvation. But here's what's neat about this, is Peter and John were preaching the gospel. They were preaching what they had learned in John chapter 14, in John chapter three, in Hebrews chapter two, in Hebrews chapter nine, in Romans chapter three, and the verses go on and on and on and on about how Jesus truly is the only way for salvation. And they start preaching this message. The religious leaders get upset. They throw Peter and John into prison for a night. And guess what God does as a result of that? He saves 5,000 men. I gave you the answer at the beginning of our time together. 5,000 people come to faith and trust in Jesus as a result of this movement that God starts even in the face of opposition. And the next day, Peter and John, they're brought to trial. And this is the question that the rulers ask. They say this in Acts chapter 4 verse 7. By what power or by what name did you do this? Now we're getting to the bottom of why they're upset. They're upset because they want to know by what power and by what name did this healing occur. And this brings us to Acts chapter 4, verse 8. It says this. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Now let's stop here for just a minute. This is gonna be a journey together. We're gonna to cover all of chapter four today, but we're gonna take pit stops along the way. So you're gonna to have to listen quick, okay? You um, have to listen really quick. The first pit stop is this this is what I want you to see here. The Holy Spirit empowers us to be bold. The Holy Spirit, when He fills us, He empowers us to be bold and to be courageous. Do you remember when Jesus was arrested in the Gospels? Namely, Matthew chapter 26 is a good place to look. You remember when Jesus was arrested? What does the Bible tell us that happened there before His crucifixion? Matthew says, He tells us that Jesus was standing before the high priest and He's on trial. And meanwhile, while he's on trial, before the high priest, where is Peter? Peter is out here in the courtyard by a fire. And do you remember the situation that's going on with Peter out here in the courtyard by the fire? There's a little servant girl who walks up to Peter and she says to Peter, I recognize you. I've seen you before. In fact, you are that man's friend. You walked and you've lived life with Peter or with Jesus. I've seen you do this. And what does Peter do? Peter says, oh, no, 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 no. You don't don't associate me with him. (laughs) That's not my friend. I don't know that guy. And not only does he deny Christ once, but he he denies Christ three times that night. This is exactly what Jesus told him before the rooster crows. You'll deny me three times. And Peter remembers Jesus' words, and he sees the reality of what just occurred, that he truly did deny Christ three times that evening. And this is what's so neat about this passage of Scripture here at this church. You you see what's happening here is that Peter goes, he denies Christ three times, and the same guy, Peter, here in Acts chapter 4, you know where he's at? He's not in the courtyard. He's standing before now the same high priest that Jesus stood in front of. And this time, he's not cowarding his tail and and tucking his tail and running off. This time, he's standing before the high priest and he's defensive about the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't care if they get their feelings hurt because he's proclaiming truth in their face. That's what he's doing. What is the difference between Peter in the courtyard and Peter standing before the great high priest? It's the Holy Spirit, Miss Linda says. The Holy Spirit has moved in the life of Peter and has given him the boldness and the courage that he needs to testify about the Lord. That's the only thing in the life of Peter that has changed is the Holy Spirit now has empowered him to be bold. So Peter's now filled with the Holy Spirit and it says in verse 8, But Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, you see what Peter's doing? Peter's turning the tables on them. He's saying, I cannot believe this. I am standing on trial today before the high priest because a guy who could not walk for 40 years is now walking and leaping and praising God. That makes no sense to me. Are you seriously gonna try us for this? You're gonna put us In this position, because a guy can now walk that has never walked a day in his life, he's turning the tables on them a little bit. Let me say something that I want want you to hear this morning. This is another pit stop. Here it is. When you live for God, you can expect criticism for doing good. I didn't say for, for, for doing things that don't matter. I said when you live for God, you can expect criticism for doing good. Now, what you have to understand is that everyone in this world is not going to stand around and applaud you. They're not going to do that. When you're living your life for God and you step out on the limb a little bit for him, you can expect criticism for doing good. Let me tell you this. And I know this sounds kind of weird, but I think it it deserves to be said. You know, when, when I stand up here in front of you and I am bold enough to say that Jesus is the only way for salvation... That is exactly what Peter is saying. It's an exclusive thought, okay? It excludes anyone who doesn't believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ as the only way for salvation. My expectation out of you is to to agree with me in that. So what I'm getting at is it doesn't require a lot of boldness and courage from me to talk about the exclusivity of Christ in front of you because you're going to agree with me in that regard. What takes boldness from me is when I talk to you about something that the the, the opinion of of our church might push against a little bit, but yet it's rooted in Scripture. So let me me give you an example of this. And I know that we don't like to go here, but I I think this is formative for our congregation. And I think if we'd open ourselves up a little bit, I think we would see that all of us have areas of our lives that we need to chisel away at a little bit and allow the, the Lord to reshape. Remember how he says, he's the potter, wear the clay. Sometimes we need to kind of take off some edges so that this thing can look the way that he intends for the look. And that's what I mean by this. Okay, when the culture around us is in crisis mode, okay, you can expect that in the next two years. I just want to warn you. When the culture around us is in crisis mode, we are obligated to speak gospel truth into that culture. You do understand That cultural things, even political things at times, are things that the gospel speaks directly into. When Jesus said that I am the king, that was 100% a political statement. What he was saying is, Caesar, you are not king, I'm king. And there's no way around it. And what we have to understand is, as mature believers, is that the gospel is for everyday life that it intersects our lives as we live in the culture around us. So as we do that, what happens is it takes someone with boldness and courage, filled with the Spirit, and I'm not talking about me here, I mean, I'd have to be filled with the Spirit in order to do it, to talk about something that you're tired of hearing of at work. To talk about something that you're tired of reading about on, in the newspaper, or that you're tired of hearing about on the news. Why? Because it's going against the currents of where most people in our congregation are going. But that's exactly what we have to do is we have to realize that the media benefits from trouble. If we can create conflicts, then people will watch us and we benefit revenue because they're watching us talk about this conflict. And at some point in our lives, we have to realize they're probably not our friends. They want to stir strife and stir division and do everything else because we feed on that stuff. And then all of a sudden it starts to creep into the congregation, the church. And before you know it, Satan, who is very crafty, is literally uh, deconstructing the home, the church, the marriage, the nuclear family, you name it. All of a sudden it's just decomposing. It takes a bold pastor. To speak into those things. And I'm not, again, I'm not saying this about me. What I am saying though is if you check out another church, make sure they do that kind of stuff. Make sure that they're talking and speaking into cultural things that are around them. I know that spent a lot of time on that, did not intend to do that. Not everyone around you is going to applaud you. Not everyone is going to agree with you. (laughs) You can expect some criticism. And Peter adds, By what means this man has been healed? Let let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Mm. This presents a big problem, though, to the religious leaders. They didn't believe in Jesus, they didn't believe in miracles. These religious leaders, they didn't believe in the resurrection of Christ. Yet now there's undeniable evidence standing in front of them that something has happened to this man. There's no doubt that this man standing in front of them is the same guy who for 40 years was begging outside the temple gates, the gate called Beautiful. All of a sudden, they're face-to-face with something that they don't believe in, that they don't agree with. Now this man who... Who was lame is no longer lame. He's leaping around. He's praising God. Brings me to another pit stop. The greatest evidence of the power of God is a changed life. The greatest evidence of the power of God is a changed life. Here is a changed life standing before them. He was indeed lame he now has strength in his legs and his ankles to stand up and to stand before them. There is no greater marketing strategy for the church today than to transform life in Jesus Christ. We have to understand that. We say this every year around Christmas because we believe it to be true. Church, you are our marketing strategy. We can dump money into billboard signs and you know, door hangers and invite cards and all of this. But at the end of the day, there is nothing greater than a personal invitation. There is nothing greater than the power of a changed life. So there's no greater marketing strategy than a life that's changed by the gospel of Jesus. When people who knew who you were before Christ see now who you are after you came to know Christ, there's no greater advertisement for Jesus than that. And nobody can argue with it because you knew who you were and how you thought and what you did before you knew Jesus. And now you know that everything about your way of thinking, the lens by which you see the world, everything is beginning to change. And it's not changing because you're working hard at your behaviors. It's changing because now the Spirit of God dwells in you and he's working hard at changing you from the inside out. Can I tell you something, church? Your neighbors and your coworkers they want to see. That Jesus has truly made a difference in your life. They're not going to buy into this Jesus idea if they see that you're the same person you once were that you are today. They want to see that even when you walk through difficulty, you grieve as one who still has hope. Because Jesus is still there residing in you and walking with you through it. They want to see that you are making different decisions and prioritizing your life in a different way than you were before you knew him. And Peter continues in verse 11, this Jesus is... The stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter here is quoting Psalm chapter 118. In Psalm chapter 118, it says, The stone which the builders have rejected has become the chief cornerstone. The story that's kind of told with that stone is that back then when they built the temple, essentially, they didn't use brick and mortar to build it. Like, they had stones. And they would take these stones, and instead of chiseling and breaking away these stones near the temple, because that would be highly distracting, right, to the people who were worshiping and praying inside the temple, and they did this daily, what they would do is they would go to the rock quarry, and at the rock quarry, they would cut these stones with precision. They'd send them over, and then they would stack them and fit them to make, you know, to build the temple, to build the infrastructure, So here they are, they're getting the stones cut. Now just imagine how precise you have to be with your measurements for this to happen. Now they have to get these stones cut, they ship them over, they start stacking them together to build the temple, and then one day a stone shows shows up, and they're starting to put this thing on, you know, trying to fit the piece in the puzzle, and it's not fitting. And they think, oh, this is just a waste. So what they would do with all the waste is they would roll it down the hill and it would pile up. Just like if you were building a house, you would have your, like, trash pile, pile of rubble over here. Same thing to them. They just pushed it all down the hill so it would be away from the temple, and it just kind of collected. All right, so now you got this stone they didn't know what to do with. They roll it down the hill. It's in the trash pile. They finish the building, and all the while, while they're cutting off this stone, all the stone is going into the, you know, the excess is going into the trash pile. So it's building up. Well, they get done with the temple, and they realize there's one stone, the most important stone, which is the cornerstone. It's not there. Where is the stone? So they send word back to the rock, rock where y'all did not cut the, the cornerstone. And they send word back and they say, oh, no, we did. We've already cut it and we've sent it. And it dawned on somebody. Uh-oh. That stone that we didn't know where it fit, that was the most important stone. We rejected it and we threw it into the rubble. That's exactly what he's saying here in Psalm chapter 18. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. And they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Now, there are three verbs in this text. Three verbs that I want you to see. The first one is this they saw. Okay? They saw. What did they see? The Bible says they saw the boldness of Peter and John. Don't make the mistake of thinking that Peter by nature was bold. Okay? Listen, Peter by nature was impulsive, that's what he was. He was not by nature bold. He was by nature reactionary. He was by nature impulsive. Think about it. Just because you speak out and just because you stand up, that doesn't make you bold. Sometimes that makes you crazy, right? And that's what Peter often was. When they came to arrest Jesus, Jesus got onto Peter because Peter jumped up immediately and started cutting off people's ears. That's what he did. That was Impulsive. That wasn't what he should be doing. If he were bold, when he stood before a little servant girl in the courtyard that day, he wouldn't have denied Christ three times. Right? There's a difference in being impulsive and being bold. But now the Bible says Peter is bold. There's a holy boldness as he stands before these men and he preaches the gospel to them. Okay? The second word, not only they saw, but they perceived. Well, what did they perceive? It says they perceived that they were uneducated, common men. The Bible's saying that these men, Peter and John, they're just uneducated, common people. They're simple in the way that they approach life. Now, I want to say this, and I know this is going to sound a bit vulgar, so cover your kids' ears for just a second. They were not idiots, okay? They were not idiots. That's not who they were. But they were not scholastics either, What I mean by that is Peter and John didn't have a stack of degrees hanging from their wall. They were just common, uneducated folks. They were fishermen who lived simple lives. And then it says this. Yet, when they talked about the scriptures, it says they left the high priest astonished. Uneducated, common people who have no degrees knew the word well enough that when they spoke, it left the high priest astonished. You know what I learned from that? That even as common people, we should know our word. We should love the word. We should be in the word. And we should be dissecting the word each and every day of our life. That's who these men were. They loved the word and had no trouble sharing it with other people. The third verb here is the word they recognized. They recognize. What did they recognize? Well, they recognize. according to Acts chapter 4, these men had been with Jesus. You know, church family, you can always tell when someone has been with Jesus, can't you? You can always tell there's just something that radiates out of them that says, man, these people have been with Jesus. Usually, what, what that accompanies or what comes with that is not a critical spirit. Usually, that's not self-righteous indignation. That thinks I've got it all figured out, you're all wrong. You know, that's usually not what it looks like when someone walks with Jesus. It's usually not a person who's opinionated about trivial things, especially in the life of the church. What it looks like usually when someone has been in the presence of Jesus is there's this meekness about them. There's this gentleness, yet firmness, about them. There's this humble confidence that's found in them. And you can always tell when someone has been with Jesus. You know, a professor of mine a long time ago said this to me and I'll never forget it. Now, I can shoot holes in this all day long, okay? So this isn't Bible, it's just good words from a professor. All right, this is what he said. He said, Trey, there's a difference in two types of people. One type of person you can always tell is a person that's, you know, they, they know the Word of God. I mean, they absolutely know the Word of God. You talk to them in a conversation, man, they know verses, they're spitting out scriptures, they're challenging your thoughts, and I mean, they just know the Word of God. And then there's another type of person, and that type of person is known by the God of the Word. And they're different. You can know the Word of God without knowing the God of the Word. And you can know the Word of God Without being fully known in a way that 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 satisfies and brings him glory, and and what I mean by that is you can't you can't uh, know the God of the Word without also knowing His Word, <laughs> like, like you can. That's how you get to know Him. That's why I so you can shoot holes in that. But the point of the the conversation was to show me that there are people, man. They just know Scripture and they eat it up, and they're very academic, and man, they have conversations about theology and doctrine all day all day long. But when you meet with them, you don't really feel moved. If you're honest, you're just like, man, you you, you have it all up here and it hasn't translated to here yet. And you can tell that there is certainly a difference in those types of people. These religious leaders recognize that Peter and John have been in the presence of God because God oozed out of them in their conversations. Verse 14 and we're going to speed up. It says, but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another. So they huddle up, they get together and they say, what shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we can't deny it. I mean, the guy's healed. (laughs) Nobody can deny that. We just look dumb if we try to. That's what they're saying. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn. That means let us threaten them to speak no more to anyone in this name. Do you hear that, church family? They did not care that the miracle was done. They did not care that this man was healed. What they cared about is that the spreading of the name of Jesus was at stake. They didn't want that name to spread. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Mm. Say that name with me. Jesus. Jesus. One, two, three. There's just something about that name. Say it with me. Jesus. Jesus. Jesus, there's just something about that name. Master, Savior, here it is. Jesus, like the fragrance after the rain, right? Jesus, Jesus, think about what you're saying. Jesus, let all heaven and earth proclaim. Listen, kings and kingdoms, they'll all pass away, but but there's something about that name. Do you believe that, church? Do you believe there's something about that name? This is a name that Satan fears. This is a name that demons flee. This is a name that the world, according to Acts 4, and the world that you and I live in today, this world hates. The name of Jesus brings up so many different emotions in so many different people. It's a powerful name I'll never forget riding through a drive through with a seminary friend who looked at me and said, I can't stand songs like we just sang. There's nothing powerful about the name of Jesus. What's powerful is Jesus. That's what's powerful. I started to think, well, that's quite interesting. At the name of Jesus, demons flee in Scripture. And I guess there's just nothing about. It. Now, certainly, we all understand that the name of Jesus is associated and connected to the life of Jesus. There's something beautiful and powerful about Jesus. That's what's beautiful. That's what's powerful. We understand that. Now, Jesus spells his name J-E-S-U-S. Jesus. He plays for the Marlins, but you look at his batting average, and you know he's not Christ. Like right? you know he's not that Jesus. It's just the truth. So there's not necessarily nothing powerful about the name, but we know that the name, Jesus Christ of Nazareth, is connected to Jesus that you and I are saved by. So the religious leaders, what do they do? Because they want to stop this name from spreading? Verse 18 says they passed the law. They passed the law. You can no longer speak about the name of Jesus. So how do Peter and John respond in Verse 19. And by the way, this is how we're concluding. These two responses are responses to opposition, all right? In your life group, in your church, in your life as you're walking with God, when the movement of God begins, listen, there's two things you need to go to. These are two tools you put in your pocket, and any time opposition breaks out, this is where you go, all right? Look at what he says in verse 19. But Peter and John answered them, Where it's right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, You be the judge. For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and what we have heard. Your president just told you, and I don't mean your literal one, but that office just told you, you can no longer speak about the name of Jesus. You're pit between obeying your government official, which the Bible does clearly tell us to do, or obeying the Lord God. Anytime your government tells you to do something that goes contrary to the name of the Word of God, you always do what the Word of God says, okay? Let's make sure we're clear on that. Anytime. And what Peter and John are saying here is even if we tried to hush, we can't help but speak about what we've seen and heard. Two responses to opposition. The first one is personal testimony. Personal testimony. We can't help but speak about what we have seen and heard. They saw God move, and they couldn't help but tell people about it. Isn't this who we want to be as a church? A church that sees God move in such a drastic way that we can't help but tell people about what we have seen and what we have heard. And please hear me. I don't mean that we're telling them about our programs, though our programs are good. I want them telling us, I want us to be telling them about our God because he is good, and he's better than any program we'll ever start here at our church. I promise you that. So a group of people who have experienced such an awakening in our lives that we can't help but tell people about what Jesus has done. My question to you this morning, is that your present reality? Is God moving in such a powerful way in your life that you can't help but go and tell people about what he's doing in your life? Church, listen, God moved in me when I was 14 years old. My sister, who was a persistent little bug, would not relent on sharing the sharing the gospel of Jesus with me. And finally, after a few years, I gave in to listen to her message and God awakened my heart and saved me as a 14-year-old kid. And since then, he has moved in such a powerful way that he saved my mom, he saved my dad. I've seen God move. I've seen him save their marriage. I've seen him save my family. I've seen God save alcoholics and save drug addicts and save work addicts and save sex addicts. I've seen him save boring marriages. I've seen him save broken marriages. I've seen him save dead marriages. I've seen him save hundreds in Nicaragua in one single night. I've seen him save hundreds in Raleigh-Durham through the planting of a church. I've seen him heal victims. I've seen him restore sinners. I've seen him provide for me in ways that before you today I could not even begin to explain. I've seen him save college students through VSU-FCA. I've seen him save little kids. I've seen him save an 88-year-old war vet as I knelt right beside his recliner and prayed with him to receive Jesus as his Lord and Savior. I've seen him save two of my own kids and baptize in that pool right there. And I believe... That Jesus is going to save my other two kids and they too will be baptized over there. I've seen God move here. Do you know that of 3,500 Baptist churches in the state of Georgia, that you, Eagles Landing, was in the top 10, if not top 20, or top 20, if not top 10, in baptisms last year? Do you realize that? Of 3,500, I've seen God even move here. I've seen God heal some of you. Some of your families, you know who I'm speaking about. I've seen God carry your burdens. I've seen God strengthen our bond. I've seen God move. And guess what, church family? There's nobody that's going to shut me up about that. Nobody. Now, certainly, the enemy wants me to focus on what's not going well. And certainly he wants me to get sidetracked by the trivial and the insignificant and the things that really don't matter. But I am convinced that Jesus wants me focused on who he is and what he's doing. And when I do that, everything that's declared out of my mouth will be to the praise of his glory and for the edification of his people. Personal testimony is response number one to opposition. Secondly is prayer. Secondly, it's prayer, and this band better come on out because I'm gonna be here till 12:30. It's prayer. Here we are. It says in verse 24. That'll get them. Don't act so shy about it. I'll just come on. <laughs> prayer. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, "Watch this sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them." <laughs> Let's just stop there. What? A word, they go to God. This is their spiritual instinct to opposition. Can your pastor confess sin to you? Do y'all allow that? And my spiritual instinct isn't always, in the face of opposition, to go to God in prayer. It's to go to my wife and complain. <laughs> Brian, Stephen, in my line, if I'm lying, I'm dying. Right? It's to go to Stephen and Brian and complain. My spiritual instinct is not always to go to God in prayer, and this serves as a reminder to me and to us that when opposition comes, man, we got to hit our knees and go before, what does he say? The sovereign Lord. They get threatened. What do they do? They lift their voice to prayer. You know what prayer does, church? It changes our perspective. It changes my perspective. It changes your perspective. They didn't say, hey, God, you've really messed this thing up. God, I really wish you would give me this. I really wish you would quit doing that. God, I really wish you'd give me that. They didn't say that. What did they say? They said, Sovereign Lord who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. They started their prayer this way because it recentered centered them and gave them a proper perspective. Listen, a right perspective remembers who you are talking to. This is going to change your life, church, if you'll listen. Here it is. A right perspective elevates your faith. Don't say that I'm the only one in this room who says, like the disciples, Oh God, I believe, but help me with my unbelief. Because there's a lot of things I want to believe, and sometimes I just struggle to believe. But a right perspective every time, when I'm recentered on that, it elevates my faith when you remember that you're talking to the God of the universe, the God who spoke everything that you enjoy into existence, the God who sustains the world as you and I know it, the God who sent his son to do what you and I could not do, living a life we were supposed to live, but because we did it, he then went and died the death that was ours to die. When you think that you are talking to that God, oh, there's nothing that's too crazy to ask, nothing. Reminds me of Jeremiah. Jeremiah found himself in a pickle in Jeremiah chapter 32. Listen to his words. He said, Lord God, who made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Listen. There is nothing too difficult for you. Some of you need to pray that prayer today. Maybe it's a pickle you found yourself in. Maybe it's a trial or a challenging time that you're confronted with. God, who created the heavens and the earth, there's nothing too difficult for you. Jeremiah's perspective changed. Perspective brings you to a place of confidence in believing. It elevates your faith. You know when Peter says sovereign Lord, that word Lord is a rare word used in the Greek. You know what it means? It means absolute ruler or dictator. And Peter's reminding himself, perspective changes, that before you sovereign God, you're the absolute ruler. You're the dictator. He's painting a picture for us that if he's the king, if he's the ruler, if he's the dictator, listen, you don't get a vote. Because he is the autocratic dictator, ruler, and king of the world. He says, "You'll love, if you love me, you'll what? You'll obey all my commands." Here's what breaks my heart, and this is how we're going to close. Peter and John stood before the high priest, and the high priest said to Peter and John, "You can't speak about the name of Jesus no more. I'm stopping the movement. I'm stopping. Your personal evangelism. And when the high priest issued that law, Peter and John said, we can't help but do this. You and I live in a land where we can share the gospel freely, yet we can't help but stay silent. Something should break our heart about that reality. It should break our heart that you and I have the freedom to share with anybody on any street that we want to share Jesus with. And yet the one thing that is lacking in the church that's neglected is the fact that we don't share our faith openly. Makes me think that we need to be on our knees before God in prayer saying, Sovereign Lord, you're the dictator, you're the ruler, you're the king. You commanded me to go and share my faith and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and then to teach them to observe all that I have commanded. And Father God, if I love you, I'll obey you. And if I'm not obeying you, as clear as day, then I'm not truly in love with you. I didn't write names on a wall just so the wall could look cute. We put names on a wall because we want our hearts to be so burdened by the lost that if you call Henry County home, Eagle's Landing is gonna make it hard for you to go to hell because our witness is gonna be that strong. So Father, we come to you this morning and we pray again and again and again that you'll burden our heart for the lost, that you'll change our perspective in the face of opposition. You'll help us remember that the church has one mission, and that's to make Jesus known. Everything else is supplemental and sometimes a distraction. So help us have a singular, focused view on who you are and what you want us to do, and help us say yes to whatever it is that you ask, because you are the autocratic, dictator king of our lives. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Let's
1: respond to that. Jesus, 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 there's just something about that. Yes. Master, Savior, Jesus, like the friend.